Well, as we begin the month of August, uh, we really kind of reach with something of an inflection point in the year for us, even as a church. We somewhat intentionally tap the brakes on the church calendar in the month of August to try to let everyone gear up for um, things getting back to full steam in the fall. And maybe you think about this in your own family as you prepare for the beginning of a new school year. And for many people, really, this transition we go through in August and September is just as impactful, if not more, than the beginning of the calendar year in January. Uh, Because maybe you find yourself more reflective or even setting goals for the year that is ahead. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm feeling that a little more than normal, not only preparing for a new school year with my kids, but preparing to uh, welcome our fifth child into the world literally any day now. Or maybe it's preparing for starting a new book in the fall. At the beginning of of September, we'll be starting a study through the book of Genesis together. So I'm excited about that. I'm hoping to get through the book of Genesis in about a year and a half, two years. And if you're like, man, that seems like a long time. Well, then we'll probably be spending even longer in the book of Romans is the plan at this point. Uh, So I think there's a lot to be excited for as we continue to dig into God's word together as a church over the next uh, several years. Really, the passion of my life is a belief that revival does come from the Bible. And as we continue to be a church that is centered on the word of God, there is going to be so much for us to learn and God is gonna do so much in us. But today for uh, another psalm in our summertime, I've chosen a psalm that is a bit more reflective, a psalm that uh, considers the passage of time, a a psalm that uh, will introduce us to the next author that we'll be spending time with, Moses himself. Turn with me to Psalm 90 this morning. Turn with me to Psalm 90. And if you're wondering if, you know, we turn the heat up to, to coincide with some of the things we're going to see in Psalm 90. That is not the case. There seems to be some issue with the AC here at the school this morning. Um, But as we dig into God's word, I'm sure that uh, he will minister to us and to our spirits. But turn with me to Psalm 90. This is a, it says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So that means it is one of the oldest Psalms that we have. An interesting companion when you think through the first five books of the Bible, where we, here we have a song, or as it says, a prayer of Moses that will be good for us to consider this morning. Follow along as I read our text this morning. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence." For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. 
Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So as we look at this psalm, it begins with this majestic view of God, a God who has been our dwelling place in all generations and a reminder that God has been reigning from everlasting to everlasting. Before the world was, God is, and he will always be. And that sets the stage, but much of the psalm then is a contrast. In contrast to God and who he is, there is us. And we are not like that. And the tone then shifts. It gets much more somber. Uh, Moses reflects on the problems and the challenges of a life in this world. And even as we take time to reflect and organize our thoughts, or maybe as you think about uh, the year, the ministry year, the school year that is ahead, you think about the challenges you anticipate. What are the greatest challenges you anticipate over the next 12 months? Is it some kind of financial challenge? Is it some kind of family challenge or something you hope to accomplish with your family? Is there some conflict you would like to see resolved over this year? Is there a a health difficulty that you are seeking to work through? I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the challenges you're anticipating over uh, the next 12 months, but Psalm 90 reminds all of us, whatever you're thinking of, likely you have a bigger problem than that. And Psalm 90 points that out. Point number one this morning, rethink your biggest obstacles. Rethink your biggest obstacles because most of what we think of as our obstacles come down to things that are in the grand scheme of things temporary. Where Moses would encourage us to step back and see, no, there are bigger things. There are more eternal things. All those other things may be a problem, but your biggest issue is that your life is short your life is fleeting. You don't know if you will live through this year or not. And then he'll even go on to explain it. And why is that? Why is it that life is short? Why is it that death comes to us all? And we even see the beginning hints of that in verse three. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. That takes us back to how God created Adam from the dust of the earth. And then where is all this death and the brevity of life coming from? It's coming from sin. Because when sin came into the world, when the curse came into the world, death came into the world. And God said to Adam, from the dust you came and to dust you will return. All of us will return to dust. All of us will die. And that is because of sin. And again, that is a contrast to God. Our lives are short, but to God, a thousand years is but as yesterday. Or even not just as a day, even as a watch in the night, a four-hour period in the night. God is eternal, and we are so temporary. 
And then he gives a few illustrations to to highlight how temporary we are. The first is you sweep them away as with a flood. Again, we've already seen that imagery in Psalm uh, 62, that the flash flood coming through, just sweeping things away. The next time there's a tsunami somewhere in the world, you know, you watch those videos on YouTube of the effects of the tsunami and you see a house like floating down a street being swept away by those tides. Right next time you see that house, say, that's my life. My life is just getting swept away by the tides of time and death. Next, he compares them to a dream. I remember waking up Friday morning thinking, man, I had some intense dreams last night, but I couldn't remember what they were, right? And you all know the same experience. That is your life. For then it says like grass that is there in the morning and then it flourishes. Think of wildflowers. In Texas, where I grew up, the state flower is the blue bonnet. And sometimes in the spring, all of a sudden, the whole state seemed like it had a carpet of blue. It didn't last very long, right? They were there one day and they were gone the next. Again, that is your life, Moses is pointing out to you. But then he gets again to the why, okay? My life is very, very short, like a flood, like a flower, but why is it that way? And it's really because of God's anger and wrath in response to sin. That's verse seven. For we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath, we are dismayed. God has cursed the world because of sin, We were created to be living in the garden, eating from the tree of life, but because of sin, we were separated from God. We were separated, uh, cast out of the garden. And even now, God, it says, has set our sins before him and our secret sins in the light of his presence. As one commentator put it very well, there is no such thing as secret sin. There's no such thing. God sees what we do hears what we say, and puts what we fondly imagine to be our secret sins out in the open. All of your secret sin is exposed before God. And when we look at this world where life is is short and life is hard, really we are all part of the problem because we have all contributed to the problem of sin in this world. And that's why we experience what we experience in verse nine. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh, right? Life is not only short, there's, a, there's some kind of a groaning that goes to it. There's a sigh that comes with our end because our days are passed away under God's wrath. And this can be true of the world in general, but there's times where this is more acute in the life of even a nation, right? These verses would be more poignant, perhaps, if you were reading them in the midst of the the Civil War, saying, wait, why is life the way that it is? Why are so many people, people being cut down before their time? God is putting our sins out in the open. And really, you need to see this in the light of the fact that Moses is likely considering the same things. Moses is going through a time of a similar experience because if he is writing this and considering these things, it is most probable you can put this at some point in the wilderness wanderings. They are wandering through the wilderness and people are dying. And even that should help you read verse 10, not through the lens of the life of a modern American, but through the lens of Moses. Because we read that, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. And we think, well, 
that fits roughly with the average lifespan in the world and in America today. You're gonna get 70 years and maybe if you really take care of yourself, you'll get 80 years. But how old was Moses when he died? He was 120 years old. Joshua lived to be 100 years old. Aaron, Miriam, and Caleb all lived to similar ages to Moses and Joshua. Now, sure, those were shorter than Adam and Methuselah, but that's still longer than 70 and 80. When Moses is saying, hey, 70 or 80 years, he's saying people's lives are getting cut short here in the wilderness. And we know why, if you read the book of Numbers, again, I think a poorly named book in our English translations, a name like armies or warriors would be better because that's what it's about. The army of the Israelite camp getting ready to go into the promised land, but they don't go. The army doesn't show up for battle because when the spies go in, they say, nope, it's too big, we can't go. And the numbers at the beginning of the book, that census of all the men that were ready for war, God says, this is the punishment. All of those men are going to die in the wilderness. And only two will make it in, Joshua and Caleb, because they trusted in me, because they wholly followed me, God says. So all those other men die in the wilderness, probably at 70 or maybe by reason of strength, 80 years. That first census counts 603,000 men that should have been in the army of Israel. Well, if you do the math over 40 years, that's 40 funerals a day in the wilderness of people being cut down, people dying because of their sin of rebellion against God. And that makes more sense to Moses than crying out, oh God, Life is so short. We pass our days under your wrath. And then he says in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And the implication there is nobody. Nobody is really thinking about you. And think how that applied in their situation. These people were more afraid of the people of Canaan than they were of the wrath of God. And now they're experiencing they chose poorly in that instance. But is that statement not true of today? When you look out at the world and you say, who considers the power of God and his wrath and his anger? The answer is nobody. You see that all across the nation. You see people rioting and dancing on cars. They're not considering the wrath of God. They're not considering the judgment that is coming. And that is the biggest problem that there is. And you need to realize that about your own life. Your biggest problem is death and the reality of sin and judgment. You know, you think about air travel. Air travel can have all kinds of problems and inconveniences, right? You're sweating, are my bags actually gonna make it along with me? Or sometimes you have a connection that you're realizing, wait, who, who scheduled this flight? Oh, I did. Whose idea was it to give me this little time to catch my connecting flight as you are sprinting through an airport? Or if you're taller like me, they don't make airplanes for tall people, right? So you short people, that is a blessing that you have in life. Whenever you fly, count your blessings, right? It's much more comfortable for you. But even airlines, it seems like they're calculating like, oh, you want to suffer a little less? Well, just give us a little more money, right? You want a little more legroom? Easy. More money, please. Oh, you would actually like to carry a bag onto this plane? Yeah, that's going to cost you. I'm not going to be surprised soon if airlines start saying, uh, how many breaths do you plan on taking on this flight? 
oh, the normal amount, that, that'll cost a little extra, right? Uh, for if you want the basic fee, you're gonna have to hold your breath for a few stretches, right? I mean, it's like the suffering is calculated in your travel. But here, all of those things, and some of those, I mean, missing a flight, losing your luggage, those can actually be uh, pretty big problems depending on what you may need in those things or where you are hoping to get to. But none of those compare to if you're in the air and the plane is going down, right? That is your biggest problem. Well, here's the thing, humanity, the plane is going down. And that is the biggest problem that we face. And we need to be reminded of that by Psalm 90. And even I would encourage you, as we think about the prayer of Jesus, and this is one of the questions on the back of the worksheet, part of your regular prayers should be going to God and confessing sin to him and asking for his help in avoiding temptation. And if you realize the reality of sin and the judgment that it brings is my biggest problem, then those things should be very prominent and regular parts of your prayers. But how many of us, we rarely pray about those things. We're praying about all the other challenges we see. That's like being on the plane as it's going down and praying, God, please let my bags make it, right? Um, Please let me catch this connection, right? We're missing the bigger problem. If sin and help in avoiding sin isn't a a prominent part of your prayers, you're praying about the lesser things. But if the plane is going down, praise God, Psalm 90 even reminds us there is a solution. There is a way out. But it starts in verse 12 with this prayer. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We need to number our days. And there's a lot of ways that Psalm 90 uh, reminds me of a book we studied as a church last year, the book of Ecclesiastes. That was kind of a unique book, right? There's no other book that I've started teaching through where the first message I get up to the church and say, well, this is what God's word says, everybody. You're going to die. No one's going to remember you and you're not going to change the world, right? That's how Ecclesiastes begins. Hey, you're going to go. No one's going to remember you. The sun's going to keep rising. Everything's going to keep going as it was, right? And while that may at first seem depressing, but when you actually embrace those truths, there's a lot of freedom that comes from realizing those things. And that perspective can shape you. It can give you what this says, a heart of wisdom. Point number two this morning, you need to reorder your heart's priorities. You need to reorder your heart's priorities. Understanding that life is short should make you step back and think what is really important in this world? And it'll give you a different perspective than the world would have. And the very first thing that should come with that, in light of everything that we have seen, in light of the reality that the plane is going down, the biggest priority is, do you have a parachute? Do you have a rescue plan? You need to seek salvation from God. And we even see a glimpse of that in verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Mercy from God is your only hope to avoid the judgment that comes along with sin in this, in this world. You need to seek the Lord. The Lord is the one that you can look to for freedom from the passage of time and from death. Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. And and even if he does die, he will live, right? We will be raised again. Life is short. You will face judgment. The only way to be prepared for that is a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
Have you turned from your sin, repented? Have you put your faith in Christ? Hebrews 2 talks about the fear of death. And it talks about how Satan uses the fear of death to enslave humanity. And that's always been true. Humanity is enslaved by the fear of death. And if you, if you don't think that's true, I think you've forgotten things that have happened in the world in the last few years, right? Remember 2020, people are afraid of death, right? And they will be enslaved by that fear. Only knowing Jesus Christ as your savior can free you from the fear of death. And we need to turn back again to verse one. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That's the call of this psalm. You want to avoid the wrath of God that will surely come when your life ends, probably before you want it to? You need to make the Lord your dwelling place. And we know from all of the scripture, how do you do that? It's through Jesus Christ. He is the one who is doing this ministry of reconciliation and reconciling lost people to God. That is how you can make the Lord your home. And really the theme of Psalm 90 is that God is not merely the opposite of our problems and that he is eternal and we are momentary. He is the solution for our problems. He is eternal, we are momentary, but through faith in him, he becomes our home. He becomes our dwelling place. And again, if you have not made that choice to follow Christ, to make God your home through repentance and faith, today needs to be the day because we don't know how long our lives will be. And now you should go from reading this psalm and saying, wow, this is terrifying to this is comforting because I have found a refuge. I have found a dwelling place in the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth and reigns from everlasting to everlasting. But there's so many other ways that that mindset should permeate our lives and our priorities. We should now, in light of this psalm, emphasize eternal things over temporary things. And there's a few spheres I want us to think through this morning. Just these are the areas that almost all of us live our lives. That there's three areas that will be the most prominent, and that is our homes, your work or your vocation, and your church. Right? If you are a Christian in this world, those are likely the three things that fill up your time, fill up your mind, fill up your life. And every single one of those should be affected by the reality that this life is short. And if you understand, my days are numbered and that God has helped me to number my days, you'll have more wisdom as you approach those things. Just consider this for home. The theme for our family weekend is going to be heavenly homes. And that's gonna be the whole point of the weekend. How do we order our homes and our families in light of eternity? And that, at that banquet, you're gonna hear a verse that you've probably never heard taught on at a family conference before. We're gonna look at 1 Corinthians 7.29, which says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, right? That's what we're gonna talk about, right? Because that's what the Bible says. And it goes on and says, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away. 
You need to think through your home and everything there in light of the fact that life is short. Your home itself is not the ultimate priority. Now that doesn't mean your home is not important. The Bible makes very clear, fathers, mothers, you have a great responsibility in your home. But think through the idea even, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Parents, grandparents, think about that truth often. What does it profit if your kid gets perfect grades, gets a perfect job, has a great family, but does not follow Christ? Are you gonna be okay with that? Is that what you want? And again, those things aren't mutually exclusive, but one of those things is the ultimate priority. Do they know Christ? And what impression do they get from our leadership as parents? Is it, well, having a nice house and paying for nice vacations is the most important thing in the world or following Jesus Christ is? What impression do people get? What is the shape of your home? Think through your work. If you have numbered your days, you'll have more wisdom because the world wants to tell you it's all about the bottom line. And you know, it's really not. It's really not all about that. Your attitude will be different. You'll view your work as a mission field and not simply a place to make money. And even the church, and you say, say, well, isn't the church supposed to all be about eternal things? Yes, it is. But there's ways we can get caught up in external things. We can even measure churches and ministries, not by really the substance of what is going on spiritually, but how things look on the outside. That's not how God judges things. And even when we think through something like taking ground, I would much rather be a healthy church and meeting in a school till Jesus comes back than have a building and be a dead church, right? Now, again, those aren't mutually exclusive and I would love to be a living, breathing, healthy church in a full-time facility, right? But one of those things is more important than the other. Or even outside of those three spheres, one thing that can consume many people's time are our hobbies or our interests. And that's where I think in light of this, we have to realize some of those things really aren't worth much at all. But there's also ways, well, what's my perspective on these things? Does your hobby pull you away from work, home, and church? Or is it even something that you use to deepen those things for eternal purposes? And in all of these areas, even work, home, church, hobbies, an eternal perspective will be the difference between something being a good gift from God that you enjoy and something being an idol, right? Your eternal perspective will be the difference maker because many of the things that become idols, things that we love more than God, things that we're trusting more than God, that they get out of kilter, they get out of proportion because we're not thinking through life from an eternal perspective. When we think through things with the perspective of eternity, those things get put in their proper place, and then get enjoyed rightly. I think that's one of the other points of Ecclesiastes. If you're looking for pleasure and that's your goal in life, it's not gonna work. But if you find pleasure in the things that God gives you, you'll be busy with joy, right? Let's just take something like sports, for example. I'm as big of a sports fan as anybody. I think it can be an enjoyable thing in this world, but let's be real, it can definitely be an idol. It could be something that becomes way too important for people. And one of those key factors is what's most important to you. To illustrate this, let me take you back to a contrast between me and my father in October of 2002. You see, our favorite baseball teams were playing each other in the playoffs. My Atlanta Braves against his San Francisco Giants. And it all came down to game five, the last game in the series. And it all came down to the bottom of the ninth inning. 
And the Braves were down by two runs, but they got their first two men on base with nobody out and their two best hitters were coming to the plate. And I was psyched. The Braves were gonna come back and win. And then strike out, double play, game over, inning over, series over, season over, right? And I, as an Atlanta Braves fan, I had one of those foam tomahawks, right? That are now politically incorrect, but I, I had one, right? I hurled it at the TV in disgust, right? At what had happened. And you chuckle, but really that, that was foolish. That was immature. That was a childish thing to do. Let's take my dad on the other hand, his team, the Giants, they go on to the World Series and it looks like they're gonna win. And at that point, my dad, who's been a Giants fan since he was a little kid, he has never seen them win. They have never won a World Series in his lifetime. And they are so close to winning that they're literally pulling out the champagne and putting it in the Giants locker room. But then the angels and that annoying rally monkey come back, (laughs) win the game and win the World Series. Did my dad throw anything? Did my dad storm around the house in the huff? In a huff? No, he did what he always did whenever I saw one of his teams lose. He shrugged his shoulders and said, I'm still going to heaven, right? (laughs) And that shows you the difference between a child who thinks the things of this world are so important versus a mature man who knows you know, hey, sports, it's fun to enjoy this game as a family. This is a fun thing for us to do, but this isn't really that important in the grand scheme of eternity. Whether my team wins or loses, that's not gonna change anything of ultimate value in my life. We gotta number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. And then you get in, again, this connects so much, I think, with Ecclesiastes, verses 14 and 15, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. If you look to God as your dwelling place, if you put things in their proper places, you don't need to look at the fact that life is short and say, man, this is all lame and I'm just gonna go through life depressed and bummed out, no, there is joy to be had in the Lord, even in the midst of an evil world. When we're trusting him, when we're accepting the things that he gives us as good gifts. Ecclesiastes is not a depressing book. This ultimately is not a depressing psalm because having the wrong priorities will ruin your life. If you turn your family into an idol, that's not gonna go well for you. That's not gonna lead to satisfaction. If living for money or possessions is what you are after, your life will stink, right? That's what Ecclesiastes reminds us. You'll be saying vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But when we look to the Lord, that's when we are able to say some of the things like we see in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid. And in the midst of all that, God's preparing a table before me. His goodness and mercy are following after me all the days of my life. And I'm still going to heaven, right? Those things become the realities in which you dwell and your life becomes sweet in the light of those things. And one other thing I would encourage you to think about, especially when you read that phrase, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. I want you to think about that in connection to time that you spend with the Lord. And I think it's such an important part of our Christian life to to get away from the distractions and the hustle, hustle and bustle of life to spend time alone with God every day. And I think this verse even highlights, well, what's one of our purposes in doing that? It's not just to check another thing off the list that is so, so long in our lives. 
It's to satisfy my heart with the steadfast love of God. That should be one of your goals as you spend time alone with God. And you might think that sounds nice for pastors who get paid to do this kind of stuff, but that's just not the real world. That's not my life. But let me introduce you to a guy named George Mueller. He knew a lot about the real world. He knew a lot about problems. He started multiple orphanages in the city of of Bristol over in England. And so he had all kinds of problems because he was pretty ambitious. You would probably look at him and say, hey, George, you're getting over your skis a little bit. And he would say, no, I'm just trusting God that he will provide. So he knew all about the struggles, maybe even more than you do of life. But he saw even about that importance of spending time alone with God. He said this, the point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. And when he's saying that, he's saying it specifically about spending time in the word and in prayer. I'm doing those things to have my soul be happy in the Lord. And I want to encourage you with that same thought in a life that is short, spend time every day to satisfy yourself with the steadfast love of God so that you can rejoice in him. But what about those areas that you rightly care about? Your home, your work, your church. Okay, I guess I can have a right attitude and I don't need to see things Everything is a negative, but I would like to see things get done in all of those places. I would like to accomplish something in my home. I would like to do something well at work and I'd like to see my church flourish. Well, that's where we come back to that reality. I'm eternal. He's, or sorry, I am temporal. He is eternal. I have to lean on him. Point number three, rely on God's help. Rely on God's help. And you see that there, especially in the prayer of these last few verses, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I mean, the work of our hands, that's what you're gonna spend the lion's share of your life doing. And most of that work of your hands is probably gonna be in your home, at your job and in your church. And here he's crying out saying, God, have favor on me in those things and establish what I am doing. We need to realize you will not get anything done without his help. And the scripture shows us that even about each of those areas, the home, Psalm 127 reminds us, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's not gonna work. You're not gonna accomplish anything in your home without God working. I mean, let's just try this. Why don't you try to go out and save your kids? See how that goes for you. If anything, I'll tell you, that will be counterproductive. You can do what God has called you to do, which is to be responsible to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is your responsibility. And frankly, one that every parent needs to take seriously. But we ultimately entrust these children to God unless God works in their hearts. That's what we are depending on. James 4 reminds us about work. The end of James 4, it talks about, come now, you who say. It goes on to describe, well, we're gonna go here or there. and We're gonna spend this long there. and We're gonna spend this much money and we're gonna make this much money. He says, no, no, no. Your life is a mist. You don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring. You need to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. Or even in ministry, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. 
in all three of those spheres, unless God is working, we're not going to get anywhere. And that's where this would remind us we can look to God and we can count on him working in us. He works in those who trust in him, in those who wait for him. But do you realize that you need God's help? Do you realize that when you think through your goals in your home, your work, or in your church, you can't just do this? If you're looking at those goals and saying, yes, I can handle this, it's not going to go well. It reminds me of a time early in marriage where my wife was wanting to do some decorating in our living room and, and said, you know, hey, let's, let's hang some shelves and put some pictures on them right here next to the table. And I was like, hanging shelves, how hard can this be, right? I got this. And so I hung all the shelves, put all the picture frames up. And a few moments later, there was a thunderish crash in our dining room as all of those shelves and all the picture frames on them came crashing down to the floor. Because I thought, yeah, I, I got this. But I forgot, you know, I'm really not that skilled as a handyman. And uh, in the father-in-law department, not only did I get a godly father-in-law, but I got a handy father-in-law. <laughs> Next time I did a project like that, I said, hey, can you help? Right? Can you help establish the work of my hands? Show me what to do. And when you approach your home, you approach your job, you approach your church, like you've got it handled, it's all gonna end up like those shelves. It's gonna end up, I guarantee you, crashing down around you. You need to seek the Lord's help. And again, this should connect to your time in the word. How are you gonna get that help if you're not praying for it? And even as the word reminds us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. If you're not spending any time looking at God and his wisdom, how are you not leaning on your own understanding in that? We need to rely on God. And even this reminds us that the goal of our lives isn't really accomplishing something for ourselves. The goal of our lives should be to glorify God. And you see that in the heart of the prayer in verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God, show your glory. That should be your ultimate desire in home, at work, and at church. God, show your glory. That is what we should hope to see. And like we've seen so many times in the Psalms, there's another connection to the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Instead of doing those things, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Your life is short. And that's where even as we think through, hey, what are the, the ways we want to see the glorious power of the Lord? If you are in the word, that's where you're going to see the examples. Wow, God, look at what you did here to show your glorious power. That's where you're going to be inspired to pray for those things in your own life. And there's no greater example in the scripture of the glorious power of God being revealed than in the central components of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So at this time, I would like to invite the ushers to come forward to uh, begin to pass out the elements for communion. And as you take that bread and you take that cup and we prepare to partake of those together, I want you to reflect on the glorious power of God. 
And that's what we do. We, we take time to reflect before we all together partake of these elements. And one of those purposes also is to confess sin. And after reading this, think about this verse as you sit there and as Johnny plays and as you hold the bread and the cup, who considers the power of God's anger and his wrath according to the fear of you? Your sin is great. You take this time to confess it to God, knowing that that same God that is the Bible describes has anger and wrath towards sin. He is also a God of steadfast love. He's also a God who forgives iniquity and look to him and call on him for that now. And take time even as, again, we begin the month of August, a time where maybe some things even in your life will slow down a little bit or if it doesn't feel like it's slowing down, maybe it's more just gearing up for another year ahead. Spend time lifting that year up to him right now. And knowing the reason you can count on God's help for another year is the help that he has already given you in the cross. So take some time to pray, to reflect. I'll come back in a minute and we will pray together and partake of these elements together.